Hello and welcome to the Still Space Podcast. I'm your host, Executive Coach Mary Lee Gannon, where my guests and I share fun and simple strategies to manage yourself so that you can show up the way you want in work relationships in life and not default to past behaviors that leave you disappointed. The Still Space is where you learn to take an intentional moment to challenge habitual assumptions that hold you back with enlightened truths that boost your genius. We transform drama, resentment, doubt, unmet expectations, and self-sabotage to executive presence, self-control, deep sleep, healthy choices, and more connection with people who matter while it still matters. It's time. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com, where you can also learn more about working with me. Hi, this is Executive Coach Mary Lee Gannon, and this is episode number seven of the Still Space podcast, When You Are Exhausted on the Treadmill to Nowhere. What's the treadmill to nowhere? It's that feeling that you get when you're just working harder and harder and harder and nothing is changing. You're just exhausted because working hard always served you in the past. But now it's not. Now you're finding that your relationships are frayed. You are not advancing at work the way you wanted to. You're not as effective as you'd like to be. People aren't relating to you like they used to. And so you just buckle down and work harder. And it's not changing anything. I know this very well because I did it myself. And I'm going to share some of the pain of my story today and I'm going to share with you how I made the shift to reach the executive suite, be a CEO, run organizations worth up to 31 million and what I share with my clients and what I help them do. First, I have something really special that I can't wait to share with you. Most of you know that I work by day as the CEO of a $31 million organization, and I coach a handful of clients in the evening. Now I have taken the tenets of mindful leadership and put that into a training program so that you can fast track your career leadership while also balancing that with a good night's sleep, healthy eating habits, and close relationships. I call this program Mindful Leader Satisfied Life. Not only will you have the training, you also get one-on-one coaching with me, not a group, one-on-one coaching with me so that we can unravel your personal assumptions that are holding you back. You will no longer be unnoticed, undervalued, and inadequate, feel judged, and that others think that there's something wrong with you and you start thinking there's something wrong with you too because you're getting passed over for promotions, new roles, no longer doing all the things you hear you should be doing. Sigh of relief, right? With only defeat and the fear that failure is in your DNA forever dogging you in the back of your mind. You'll no longer be disconnected from colleagues, friends, and family, or following the shoulds that make you feel you're still behind the curve and might even lose everything altogether. No longer frustration about habits that show up in terms of snacking, disjointed relationships, vices, poor sleep. No longer making excuses while not actually getting any closer to high performance. So if you're interested in this program, all you have to do 
is go to my website, maryleegannon.com. Click on the link on the top that says Coach with Mary Lee. It explains all about the program. Fill out a few questions on the questionnaire so that I know a little bit more about you and I'll reach right out to you and we'll set up a time to talk and we'll get you started. No longer will you have to wake up and say, I missed an opportunity. I wish I had. Please remember that I can only take a few clients at a time and I already have a full book right now. So I'd like to make sure that you're on the list. Head over to maryleegannon.com. Click on Coaching with Mary Lee. Let's get started. You know, while I was doing everything that I could think of to improve my sense of accomplishment as a working single mom, I was getting farther and farther away from noticing the toll It took on my peace, my leadership, my relationships, my sleep, my health, and my family. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. You're just working hard, but you're noticing it's affecting other aspects of your life. I had played to my strengths, had a dedicated work ethic, and always measured my successes, which communicated my value. I was working long hours. I achieved very high roles. I was detached, though, from my children and my friends and never really felt that I deserved to be happy. I was exhausted from continually having to prove myself on the treadmill to nowhere. And that's really important. Please take a still space moment and ask yourself, is that what I'm doing? Do I feel that I have to continually prove myself? That will exhaust you. No question about it. Please affirm to yourself right now that you need not prove yourself to anybody. Not anybody, including yourself. Let's say that again. Affirm to yourself right now that you're proven. People who need to prove themselves are the people at meetings who speak to be heard. They are mostly trying to convince themselves of their value. They have to control the conversation. They get jealous or repeatedly try to convince others that they're right. Or they withdraw and they blame everybody else. They blame themselves and they just buckle down and work harder and harder and nothing changes. You don't need to do that. You're proven. You were already proven worthy the day you were born. Imagine a big sign in front of your eyes that blinks the word proven so you don't fall into this trap of overcompensating, the trap of having to constantly prove yourself on the treadmill to know where it's exhausting. You are not any less valuable than anyone else. You are reliable and valuable. We are all walking down the same road in life. Sometimes we have to reach out a hand to help someone and sometimes we are the hand that needs to be held. I was living for the perception of others when I was early in my career. I was living for the perception of my children, my boss, my board, the community, my parents, my friends, my colleagues. I wasn't living for me. I had lost me in the shame of not being good enough, not a good enough wife, not a good enough leader, not effective enough mother. What a train wreck that statement was. My ex-husband was an alcoholic, and nothing I did would ever make him a good husband. Nonetheless, 
My denial of his alcoholism kept me stuck on the treadmill to nowhere much longer than was healthy. Denial is a symptom of the treadmill to nowhere. After I filed for divorce as a leap of faith, I thought my success would earn me favor, would eliminate that shame. I used hard work to cover up my depleted sense of self-worth. I became a workaholic. Deep down, I was embarrassed that my marriage failed, that my life ended up in anguish, that my children had to live in poverty, and that I wasn't good enough to make it all work or to be loved by anyone nice. We were on food stamps, welfare, medical assistance. My children were wearing each other's shoes. We had shifted from the country club life to poverty within six months after I filed for divorce. And I kept telling myself, well, there must be something wrong with me. There must be a flaw here, or this wouldn't be happening to me. I didn't deserve to be happy. I didn't deserve to thrive. I was doing really well in my career, but I wasn't happy. Confidence is being competent and effective. I was indeed career confident. I secured jobs I was never qualified for on paper because I got things done. My reputation preceded me. I knew what to measure and had a reputation for exceeding any goal set before me. It wasn't long before recruiters were calling me. I turned down prospective positions twice where counteroffers were made to secure me in place. Yet, yet I did not have the self-esteem to feel I deserved to belong, that I deserved to be loved, that I deserved to be happy. By all accounts, I was triumphant over tragedy. I bought a home half a mile from the one we lost in Sheriff's Sale in the most affluent suburb of my town. We went on vacations, the children were in sports and activities, they went to camps, we got a dog, we got another dog, we got two cats. I had finally arrived at the destination of what seemed like success. Sitting in a CEO role, running a $26 million organization, but it didn't feel that way because I didn't feel worthy to be happy. Worse yet, at the time, I didn't realize it. I wasn't self-aware. I was so vacant. I had happiness scarcity. Why should I be comfortable with happiness? Because surely another challenge would rise up and swipe it away. Of course. Of course. I didn't deserve happiness. Or all this suffering would have never happened. I lived with a finance scarcity mindset. No amount of money would ever be enough because I always felt one step away from the pain of poverty, the despair of not having lunch money for my children, wondering when we'd be thrown out of our house, figuring that my children would never go to college. I didn't want to ever experience that fear of the future again. I remember the day the children and I got home from the pool and a sheriff's sale notice had been taped to our front door where all of my neighbors could see it. You talk about shame. We had paid nearly 10 years on a 15-year mortgage. After I filed for divorce, my husband stopped paying the mortgage and the home went into foreclosure. He subsequently filed his businesses into bankruptcy, whereby all of the home equity went to his business debt. 
because I had personally co-signed the business loans on that debt. All wives in business do this, Mary Lee, he said. I knew better, but was afraid to do otherwise. I was in denial. I saw peril coming and was not at all surprised at the sheriff's sale notice on my door. I never read the notice either. I ripped it down before my elementary school-aged children could see it, and I threw it away. I remember standing in my hall, looking past the door into the neighborhood with shame and overwhelming feelings of determination. I was done living at the whims of someone else. I was totally committed to my own autonomy. And in that instant, where I looked from my doorstep toward my neighbor's homes, I made a promise to myself and my children that we would prevail. We were already proven. We were good people, leading servant leader lives, helping others, helping each other, loving others, loving each other, and learning to love ourselves. Survival at all costs had become my mantra. And the corporations valued my results. Corporate America is very happy to eat up your dedicated work ethic. But results came at a price back then. I often saw my community, my friends, my staff as a cog in the treadmill to survival. Survival is no way to live. I sometimes failed to see them as people with emotional needs. I was in survival mode. I had difficulty seeing people as individuals with fears, intimacy needs, wants, and souls. I had difficulty seeing my children as individuals, too. Everybody and every action had become a path to survival. In survival mode, I neglected myself as a person with feelings, emotions, and needs. Everything was shrouded in the fear of not being able to hold the family together and ultimately losing the respect of everyone I valued most, most importantly, my own children. I remember one afternoon at the local swimming pool, my eight-year-old daughter, Brianna, came up to my chair and said, Come on, Mom, as she pulled my hand. Get in the pool and have some fun with us. I couldn't move. I didn't know how to have fun. And worse, I didn't think I had earned fun. So I didn't know how to accept it when it was inviting me in. That's when I began to understand the power life messages hold on us. Life messages end up being our life story until we purposefully rewrite the narrative. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the lens that you look through to view the things and the situations in your life. Adopting life messages that are not healthy will end up reinserting themselves in your mind, reminding you all the time how you can't do something, how you're not enough to do them. And these messages end up really dangerously as core beliefs, flawed beliefs, when they are merely perceptions, assumptions, unfortunate assumptions, because life messages bring with them bias. 
And when you don't fit in in junior high school, the overarching feeling at the time might be that you aren't normal or not good enough. Or if your parents got divorced when you were young, your story might be that you learned at an early age that you're different and not to trust love or commitment. Or if you've been terminated at work, you may have adopted a story of mistrust in corporations or doubt in your own ability. These are stories. This is fiction. We want your life to be non-fiction. We want it to be real. When I say write your life story, I mean write it down. Write your own ending. Write your own story. Write what's happened in the past from a new lens perspective. Handwrite it in longhand. Type it on your computer. But get it out of your head. Start at the beginning and just write about your entire life without worrying about grammar, context, or punctuation. No, you're not going to do this in one sitting, but this is why journaling is helpful. Oh, I don't have time to journal, but you have time to feel exhausted on the treadmill to nowhere, but you have time to feel like you don't fit in or belong, but you have time to feel that you're never going to be good enough. Spend some time on yourself. Invest the time in yourself to sit down with a notebook and a pen or at the computer in a Word document, in Notepad, just write, write, and write. It's that stream of consciousness. In there you will start to realize themes. In this still space you'll see your strengths, your interests, your resilience, your realizations. Include the subtle lessons you may have overlooked. You can do this by designing quiet space to write in special place in your house or your apartment or your yard or your garden to write, just to write. And maybe writing is not your thing. Maybe you want to record it. That's fine. Same thing. Getting it out of your head, redrafting the story of your life through a different lens and prioritizing yourself in the process. The process of writing your story or saying it out loud gives you the opportunity to look for the lessons you've learned along the way, as well as the assumptions or biases you've adopted along the way. Celebrate the aha moments. Include them. Surely there's a notebook around your house, nearby, in your office, that you now can dedicate to your stories. Some days you might just want to sketch that story. Or you might want to cut something out of a magazine and paste it in there. Or just use your computer, stream of consciousness, just write. Don't worry about plot. Just write what you're feeling, thinking, write what you remember about your past. It is a piece in the learning puzzle. As you pay attention not only to what you did in your life, pay attention to how you interpret what happened when you had to have courage. You have courage. You're already proven. Let's remember when that courage showed up. Let's not trap ourselves in victimhood. Let's not trap ourselves in blame and shame. As you organize your thoughts, keep a few things in mind. Number one, forgiveness has to do with the past. Reconciliation has to do with the present. 
And trust has to do with the future. Trust in yourself matters. I used to think my story was that I was a stay-at-home mother with four children under seven, one with a developmental disability, living the country club life in an unpalatable marriage, who filed for divorce as a leap of faith, and within six months was on welfare, food stamps, medical assistance. I was homeless and without an automobile. I reinvented my life to support my family. That's the story I had for a very long time. I'm pretty proud of that story, but it isn't the whole story. And I didn't realize that until I started to write down my story. Your story begins at the beginning when you were a child, not when the biggest drama occurred. What you learned before the drama is what shaped you and gave you perspective and context and courage and resilience and vibrancy. My mother, though very well-meaning, was very insecure due to an early childhood trauma. This took its toll on me, the only daughter, my brother, and my father. We all found ways to cope, but it left us all on very unsteady ground, constantly on edge in fear of her outbursts and wrath. This led to a lifetime battle with anxiety for all of us. Despite her insecurities, she led many organizations in a volunteer capacity and offered a lot back to the community. My father was my stabilizing rock with sound character, a simple perspective, and servant leadership. He was calm in the face of turmoil. He was my true north. I homed into him for consistency. From him, I learned my character, my leadership, my ability to laugh at myself. When I understood the power of the three things, self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-acceptance, I realized I had learned more from my mother than simply anxiety. I learned how to organize people around a cause, how to speak in public, how to have presence, how to project confidence. Eventually, the resentment faded as I became curious about how she had become so insecure. That's when I learned more about her childhood, sitting down and asking her questions that I never knew the answer to. That is when I learned humility for my mom. Stepping into the space of vulnerability, where I didn't know the answers and I could have an open conversation with my mother, I discovered many new things. While I knew her father had died when she was eight years old, I never realized that the day he died, she had to hide in the closet of the hospital because children were not allowed there. The family's Italian grief was histrionic with lots of blame, crying, and anger. No, he shouldn't have died from having an ulcer. My uncle grabbed the surgeon by the throat. In all of this, my mother simply was not even literally and figuratively seen. She was in the closet. People weren't focusing on her. She was eight years old. Her closest sibling was 13 years older than she was. And her eight-year-old mind only processed how she watched her family grieve with hysteria. She had no memories of anyone asking her how she felt or shielding her from the drama. The hour ride home in the car was only focused 
on how angry everyone was at the hospital and at the surgeons and the doctors and the nurses and other family members. My mom sat silently in the back seat, unseen and unheard. Worse yet, she didn't even know she had feelings. She didn't even know she should talk about her feelings. She didn't even remember the situation from any heartfelt perspective, just as a bystander watching it play out like a movie on the screen. She holds absolutely no resentment for that time, but also has zero self-awareness of what went on then. It makes me very sad to think of her in that situation, in that closet, viewing her father dying and not understanding anything about what was going on. It took me putting my hurt and childhood wounds aside to want to heal, to hear this story. It took humility to find compassion for her, and I'm glad I risked it, because I no longer now defend myself against her accusations of how I never was doing enough or wasn't measuring up to what she expected. It took the three things to get me here. Now I love her with no expectations, without hurt or resentment. My heart is much lighter, and hers is too, because we've talked through what happened that day, and it's helped her become more self-aware and helped in her healing as well. Healing takes work and a willingness to let go of things whose time has passed. Resentment is a heavy weight to drag forward. Healing takes necessary endings. Things have to end sometimes. It's like a rose bush. If we prune it back in the fall, it comes back beautifully and full of big flowers in the spring. If not, it just grows lanky, long tendrils with little tiny flowers on the end. It doesn't get to be its beautiful self that it could have been. Well, we have necessary endings in our lives too. Healing, growing, we have to move forward because if we get stuck, we stay on the treadmill to nowhere. Be gentle with yourself in the still space. As you unpack what needs to be healed, it's hard, but it's totally worth it. And we get there by writing down our stories. This helps us go into the still space and challenge the assumptions up against the truth. Everyone is doing the best they can. I learned things spending positive time with my grandma, my Aunt Sissy, and my Uncle Jimmy at their work. This gave me a real sense of what it was like to be in an office. Very young, before I even knew what work was, but I knew people worked because I watched my grandma, my Aunt Sissy, and my Uncle Jimmy in their work. They had their flaws, we all do. No expectations. I learned about entrepreneurship, business, building relationships. This I remembered when I started to write things down. I discovered who I wanted to be and how I would show up. That environment of being in that business with my grandma and my Uncle Jimmy and Aunt Sissy showed me how to stand on my own two feet, how to face adversity, have confidence. I observed what they did and learned from it. And I now focus on what is necessary to succeed, having remembered how much I learned from them. I applied insight to find courage, relatability, and meaningful executive positions. My tutelage paid off. 
your development will too. Take self-awareness, self-regulation, and self-acceptance. So when you sit down and you start writing, it might be a little hard at first. You can start with your childhood or by answering some very simple questions. And here's what you might start with. What am I passionate about? What code can I live by no matter what the situation? When did I learn this code? What are my five top values, the qualities that drive my decisions? Those things about me that nobody can take away, humor, tenacity, resourcefulness. What are my signature strengths? What can I do unlike anybody else? How do I use those strengths? I know that I have a very strong sense of strategy and I have a strong sense of discernment. I have very good intuition. And I pattern those strengths into my rhetoric when I'm talking about how I want to advance something, whether I'm getting a new executive role or I'm trying to launch a mission for something new in the department where I'm working. All of these, when you're a leader, and, and I'm running a $31 million company right now as a CEO, when you're a leader, people expect you to be able to have vision and know your strengths, be self-aware, and use those strengths to position yourself in the organization to succeed. Knowing those signature strengths is essential. When have others looked to you for guidance? That might be something to write about. When were you a good listener? What stories have you heard? Who taught you the most important lessons in your life? When were you funny? When do you have fun? When do you feel you belong? When did you belong? When are you most trusted? When are you most compassionate? What was your biggest challenge in life and what did you learn from that? What strengths do you draw on every time there's a challenge? You can rely on that one strength. What is it? Who do you want to emulate, living or dead? How do you show up when someone is in pain? Are you stuck in your own pain relating yourself to that experience? Or are you self-aware enough to self-regulate that feeling honor it, notice it, and change the lens on it too. Yes, this is a little uncomfortable right now. I'm honoring that feeling, but this is also an opportunity. I'm changing the thought too. This is an opportunity for me to show up for my friend and help them in their time of grief, in their time of strife, in their time of pain. This exercise of reflecting helps you build your self-awareness on your thoughts and how you interpret them. So get out a pencil, get out a notebook, open a Word document, open your recorder on your phone, and start reflecting on the stories that make you you. Because woven into those stories are the good parts that you forget when all that you can see are the smoke and mirrors and the sandstorm of blame and shame and ego and assumptions that are the coverings over the authenticity that you have underneath. And reflection will help you see all of the beauty that's there that sometimes is just covered up. I'm glad you were with me today, and I invite you to subscribe to this podcast and get any of my free publications at my website, maryleegannon.com where you can also learn more about working with me.